The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning, good morning. Welcome back to P.I.'s Declassified. I am so excited to introduce you to my guest today. You know, we often meet people in our travels, particularly those of us who are investigators, and that is the case with my guest today, Sharon Williams. She just happened to be in a nonprofit where she volunteers her time when I walked in on a completely different matter, and we started talking. Good morning, Sharon. Good morning, Francie. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you so much for joining the show. So, Sharon... S.K. Williams is a founding attorney and director of GINA Immigration Services, a nonprofit organization. They provide mobile immigration legal services to low-income individuals in Northern California. And Sharon, you handled so many areas of immigration law. What are some of those? Um, well, my, my biggest uh, practice is asylum law, and um, I also deal with uh, child migrants and um, uh, students who are applying for uh, deferred action for childhood arrivals and um, folks who do, you know, who are, who are typically refugees in, in, um, and in those categories. And then my other large category is people who have uh, suffered domestic violence. So we, we, we apply for um, legal status for those folks under the Violence Against Women Act. Okay. And were you involved in, um, in, in that act, uh, Sharon, in any way, when it first started, in the in the violence, in, violence, in the violence against, against women? yeah, no, I you know I was I was not involved in drafting that or anything like that, but um, but I was very excited for it to have that passed. Um, it is not a, a law that is specifically geared for immigration. It's a, it's a national law um, that's used within the U.S. to protect people who are in domestic violence situations, but it happened to be. Um, Used within immigration law, and that's been really helpful for our clients who have uh, who've suffered domestic violence. And in a way, it's a misnomer because it's called the Violence Against Women Act. But uh, we have men who also, um, as well as um, as well as children, who are protected under that law. And does it include sex trafficking as well? Um, you know what? It does not, um, unless the people who are in, who are in. Um, who have uh, been involved in sex trafficking are also in domestic violence situations. Um, there's another visa category for people who are trafficked, and that is the um, that's the uh, T visa. And um, um, there's also another category called the U visa, and that's for victims of crime. And so, um, y- you know, as you, you probably know, sex trafficking is a very big deal in immigration law. 
And so we do mm-hmm. have um, several categories that can cover, um, that can protect those, um, those people who've been trafficked. <clears throat> okay, so, you know, I think typically what people think of when they think of uh, um, asylum, say, for example, um, are people coming from countries that are at war or there is a cartel or something like that? But that isn't necessarily the case, is it? No. I mean, asylum um, can asylum can be given to people who are coming from, you know, many different situations. And so, they, you know, the, the vast majority of, of uh, cases that I see are people who are coming um, across the border from, from the South, you know, from Latin America, mm-hmm. typically mm-hmm. Central America, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua. So, um, you know, and a lot of those people are, have been exposed to gang violence and, and the cartels and things like that. But then there are also people who, um, who have gone through different things. Um, domestic violence is one of them. That's a new category for us. There are people who are, um, who are either, you know, um, who are either gay, transgender, um, uh, you know, those kinds of categories uh, that they cannot survive in their societies. And it's not necessarily... Um, they're not subject to the government um, act, but they're subject mm-hmm. to acts by the population that the government cannot control. So you have those kinds of categories as well. And um, uh, yeah, asylum asylum has uh, you know different different categories that you can um, apply for. Okay, so say for example, situations like that where they're being. I guess, essentially bullied and their life is in danger in these countries that don't support the same kind of laws we do. How do, how do, you, how do you substantiate that for them? Or how do they substantiate that, that they're going through this? Yeah, uh, you know, for example, um, let's say you have um, a woman who's coming from uh, a place like, I don't know, maybe Iran or Trinidad or, you know, so that the countries are, Countries are, are, are very broad when it comes to when it comes to gay, transgender, um, uh, lesbian people. Um, there are very few countries, I think, outside the West that are tolerant and and mm-hmm. or safe for people in mm-hmm. those categories. And the way you substantiate um, the way you substantiate their experience is through uh, declarations by people who are there, um, police reports that they've been attacked. You know, in some situations, actually, there are no police reports because either they're too they're too afraid to report, mm. or the um, the police don't care and they will not create a report because they, in some situations, homosexuality is considered a crime <laughs> in itself. So you know, they won't report, or the police won't make a report. So um, you get declarations, you get country reports. You know, there are all kinds of ways to substantiate um, that type of um, that type of uh, uh, situation. Um, you know, the drawbacks then will be for those folks, it, you know, drawbacks can be there's not enough information to substantiate and, and or they themselves have committed crimes, you know, against other mm-hmm. people. So, you know, mm-hmm. it, there, there are many ways to, um, to, to help them. Yeah. And um, it, we, we have uh, abilities to do psychological evaluations, you know, through organizations like Survivors International and, you know, that type of stuff. So there's a lot of information out there that we can use to help to support them. And you mentioned to me offline, Sharon, that uh, a lot of the times and what comes out of the evaluation is a person suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome. That, that's correct. Um, and, and that's for so many, many of my cases. You know, PTSD can be, um, you know, can be the result of many different types of trauma. And so a lot of, uh, a lot of folks have, um, have suffered 
traumas in, in uh, you know, in war or in or being attacked because they're homosexual or being, uh, you know, attacked by gangs and, and, and uh, cartels and cartel members and stuff like that, seeing a family member killed, um, becoming really ill from, you know, certain things, you know, whatever. So that's a great way to say it's not great for them, but it's a great way to, to, to support their case and help them to get them. Um, you know, to get that evaluation and then uh, to get asylum here. So we really like working with psychologists um, to be able to evaluate our clients, especially the ones who, uh, who have suffered pretty badly. You know, you're not always going to get a, a supportive psychological evaluation, but there are those, I, I try to make the, um, I try to make the, the analysis uh, from the individual case to decide whether we're going to go that route or not. But um, if you get that kind of evaluation, it's very helpful for the judge or the asylum office making the um, decision. So give me an example, Sharon, of okay, somebody walks in your office. I guess that's what happens. You get Somebody re- gets referred to you, or how do they find you, for, let's for starters? Well, people find Is me in, in, uh, in different ways, either by referral, um, by a former client, or um, we used to get cases from um, different organizations. Um, we have not done that so frequently um, now because... Or we, we get referrals, but we can't always take them because we are we are so um we are, we do have so many cases. Um, but other organizations will refer. Um, you know, lawyers committee, for example, lawyers committee for uh, civil rights under law will refer because they have a program specifically for asylum. And in fact, I took my very very first asylum case um, 18 years ago from that organization. Um, and so we get we get clients that come in like that, or people just walk in. Um, I also, because we're a mobile practice, we, um, you know, we'll, we go to different places. We have an RV, we go to different places, and people will just come by, will just drop by and talk with us, um, you know, during our clinic hours. So that's, that's such a having. unique idea to have a mobile practice. So, so where would, how would you decide where to go? What do you, what do, oh, you do with that? Well, you know, we have, we have a schedule and we have um, specific places where we go. So we go to Sacramento, for example, every fourth Thursday. Um, of each month, um, and we work with um, the United Methodist Church, um, Centennial United, Me- United Methodist Church in Sacramento. Um, so we're there every fourth Thursday. We are in San Rafael, and we, you know, we park somewhere. We park our RV somewhere. We have a, a license to do that. Um, we're in Richmond and in, um, and in Santa Rosa. So we're, we're hoping to um, expand a little bit more if we, can get, we, if we can get one more lawyer besides myself. Um, and we, we work a lot with volunteers. So, you know, we go to these different places. It's not, it's not, uh, it was my idea to start this practice because I was mm-hmm. working before for the United Methodist Church um, through the Justice for Our Neighbors program. And what I found was that I was having to go um, places uh, all over Northern California because people um, either could not get to us or, um, we just, we just felt like it, they had no services in those areas. So oh, it's, it's, like a, it's a, yeah. Yeah. It's a great idea. Um, I, it, it's they not, it's my, it was my idea to start it here. It's not my original idea because you know, I grew up in New York City, and in New York we have um, tons of mobile services because it is such a packed place. So mm-hmm. we don't always have buildings, right? And um, because we don't right. have buildings, you have libraries that are mobile or you know, that come to schools. You have mobile classrooms, um, medical clinics, all that kind of stuff. So I kind of stole it from back east. Well, it's a great idea because I, I can see a lot of obstacles for people coming to a law office. Um, mm-hmm. There's there's a, just so many obstacles you can think of. It's it's too corporate. It's too official. It's maybe the 
police will be there, all of those things. Mm-hmm. So when you're out on the street, that's just uh, very approachable, it seems like. Um, mm-hmm. So no, Sharon, you're, it seems- you're, very, you're very correct, Gina. One of the reasons that we would go to them, and the climate has changed a little bit, um, since that time, so this is you know maybe five years ago when I don't know if you remember when in Arizona you had um, Sheriff Arpaio doing all kinds of stuff to people, right. you know, and and, right. and immigration was uh, undoc- having an undocumented status um, back then was very very dangerous. It still is dangerous now, but less so. And I think the Obama administration has helped with that a little bit. But what we would find was we would have mm-hmm. people trying to get to us from uh, you know pretty far south. Um, Visalia, you know, those kinds of places, and they would take either a bus or they would drive or whatever, but they would be stopped, and they could, you know, all, they, all kinds of stuff would happen. So they could end up in detention, they could end up deported. So rather than risk them having to come to us, because we were um, and are a ministry of the United Methodist Church um, that focuses on refugees and on undocumented people, we would go to them instead. And my program folded here in San Francisco, so almost without a hitch, I started GINA. And um, and it's been you know it's it's slipped right in and fulfilled that um, that niche that needs to be filled. It's fabulous, just fabulous. So, Sharon, you, it seems like you've always been involved in human rights advocacy. Um, how did that happen? <laughs> it came about sort of in a roundabout way because um, I was not uh, so in my early twenties. I, I I worked in the fashion industry actually in New York City. I have a degree from, um, from the Fashion Institute in New York, and, uh, my, and my ambition was to be a designer and you know, do, be this very fashionable person. And I worked in that industry, and I was encountering a lot um, women who worked in the factories. And um, I worked for a company back then called Adolfo Collectibles. And a, a large percentage of our employees worked in the factories. They were all from um, either either mainland China or Taiwan, and they were all undocumented. And one of the things that I noticed about those women um, was that they, if I got to my office um, or I got to the factory at 6, they were there. If I left at 9 at night, they were there. And so I asked them, you know, I started talking to them, and I said, how, how is it that you guys are always here? Don't you have kids? And they said, yeah, we have kids, but we, we have to be here. And I dug and dug and dug, as is my, my uh, personality, and it took several weeks for one of them to say, well, we have no papers. And this was um, this was about 1987, and I mm-hmm. said to um, one of the women, I said, "Do you know that you can get legal? Do, do you know that?" And you know, this was a, this was a few months after the Immigration Reform and Control Act had been passed, and mm-hmm. um, it's, it's IRCA, 1986 IRCA. So that was the first um, immigration reform law that was passed, um, or in modern time anyway, by pre- under pre- President Reagan. Um, I knew about that law because my family had legalized under that law. You know, I was undocumented too. So I knew about, I knew how to get documented. Um, and so I said to them, well, this is what my family did. And, you know, tons of people did not get legalized under IRCA because they were afraid. They thought it was a trap. And those people had the same response. A lot of them did. A few of them didn't. And they went ahead and they got legalized. And then they went back and told the others, you know what? It's not a trap. It's true. We can do this. So mm-hmm. a whole bunch of them went and, and, and did it. Um, Several uh, months down the road, when a lot of those folks had left, I get to work. I say, you know, I'm on my way to work. Um, I call in to say, hey, you know what, I'm late. I'll be there as soon as I can. And the woman who answered the phone said to me, Sharon, don't come here. And I said, why not? And she says, well, you're out of a job. 
And I said, what does that mean? Uh, she says, well, you know, the boss has fired you because um, she wants you out of here because you helped those people to legalize. And, yeah. um, and she explained it to me and everything. And, I, and I, went, I went to the office anyway. And I said, well, if she wants to fire me, she has to fire me face to face. So I went in mm-hmm. there and I indeed was terminated. Um, I didn't pursue anything legal or anything like that. But I realized that, you know, that this can happen. And I know that this is not a nice situation here in the, gar- in the fashion industry, um, in, the, in the garment industry. Then um, I don't want to be here. And I want to do this kind of work because I feel good about this and I like doing this. Um, mm-hmm. And so I went from there to, um, to pursue another undergraduate degree, and I worked for the. I, I, while I was in undergrad, I worked at the UN and you know that kind of stuff. So I got really um, committed to this work, and I've been doing it probably since 1990. Yeah. What were you doing with the UN? Um, I worked for. Well, I worked for. You know, there there are different nonprofits that are that are associated with the UN, um, and so I worked for. Um, the Center for Refugee Rights and for um, the, it's called the UUUNO, it's the Unitarian Universalist United Nations Office. Um, and then finally for the, um, oh gosh, I'm forgetting the organization now, it's changed its name since, um, I'll remember later on. But I worked for different nonprofits that were connected to the UN. And um, I preferred, you know, I, there was a side of me that would love working for the UN, but I liked the um, nonprofit uh, connection better because I think that you get a little bit more done and it's not as bureaucratic and you know that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. I think everybody would probably agree with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think it's so interesting that um, that you have taken this path since you're an immigrant yourself. And how did it come about that you came to the United States? Well, um, so, you know, I was born and raised, I mean, born, born in Belize. I came to the U.S. when I was about 12. Um, I, I was at that time when I when I came to us, I was uh, what's called an unaccompanied minor because my mother had um, come to us before with two of my siblings. I'm, I'm one of seven, and my mother had come with two of her siblings or two of my siblings. Uh, my mother was a victim of domestic violence, and so um, uh, so she she left, and um, and she left me behind with my brothers, and so I then followed her um, a while later. By myself, and um, you know, it's sort of like the unaccompanied kids that are coming now. Only I did mm-hmm. not come that way. I did not come the route of you know getting on La Bestia, which is the, the train that, that all these kids are coming on. I came by air. You know, I, I flew from Belize to Miami, and then from Miami, I did not come directly to my mother. I went to my mother's brother, who is um, who at the time lived in Washington D.C. and was married to a woman who back in the day. Um, in the 60s was Hillary Clinton's roommate at Wellesley, actually. Mm-hmm. So I had a pretty cushy experience when I first came to U.S., you know, because I, my, my, aunt, my aunt worked at the White House and, you know, that kind of thing. And then shortly after I lived with them, I was uh, transferred to my mother, who was hiding out in Minneapolis. Um, and wow. that's a whole other story. But, um, you know, I went to live with my mother in Minneapolis, and there I began to live the typical immigrant life of poverty and, you know, that kind of thing, and just trying to integrate into U.S. Um, uh, US experience. Wow, that's, yeah. uh, that's quite a mouthful. Uh, we need to take a break, Sharon. Uh, you're listening to PI's Declassified Spotlight on Immigration. Don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com 
Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to F-R-A-N-C-I-E at PISdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. My guest, immigration lawyer Karen S.K. Williams, has much experience with immigration and has many facets of immigration. We've been talking about her experience, and I just asked her offline if when her mother left with her two siblings, if she was afraid. Um, Sharon, what do you tell the, our listeners what you said? Um, yeah, you know, I was I was uh, afraid that I would never see my mother again, and I think that it's a. Um, I, I work with a lot of child um, migrants who um, who have the same fear, and you know, there's that little Sharon inside of me that is very attracted to those kids, and so mm-hmm. I, you know, I and and their and their plight and wanting to help them, um, and so and I hear that from from so many of them. You know, I was separated from my mother for a year. That was that's not a long time. Many of my child migrant uh, um, clients are separated from their parents, but specifically their mothers for several years. And right. so, um, you know, and so many of them are so, so brave, you know, and they, um, because they have to be. And, and so to answer your question, you know, I was not, my, my mother was, was, uh, was in a domestic violence situation that was, that was very brief. Um, and so maybe she, you know, was not a long standing kind of um, abuse situation because she's not the kind of woman to put up with that. You know, her, mm-hmm. you know, things happen once or twice. Um, and, and then she was just out of there, you know, and, and she's always taught us as women that if you are in that kind of situation, one, get out because it will, it will only escalate. And she, mm-hmm. she was smart enough to recognize that. And, um, uh, and also with the knowledge that, you know, the one thing back then that Belize was brought to the UN for um, over human rights uh, violations was domestic violence. And so mm. um, my, with my mother knowing that, that it's rampant down there, right? Beating up your wife is, you know, every, it's what you do. Really? And so, and on every level, you know, from, from, the, from the judges on down to the, to the uh, you know, the street sweepers. And so domestic violence is sort of a tradition, right? And, and uh, my mother knew that and was uh, an educated woman and was not about at all to tolerate it, so she left. And um, so my fear was not, was not 
for the um, for my father, who was the, the perpetrator, um, because I never witnessed the um, the domestic violence. What I witnessed was a loving father. You know, so I was very close with him. So I wasn't fearful of him or being left with him. I was fearful of never seeing my mother again. And so that separation anxiety is what um, is what I suffered from. Um, and you see that a lot with again, you know, I see that a lot with my with my child clients. And um, and so I care about that, and and it's one piece of the work that I'm very very committed to. So probably twice a year, I go down to the border of Texas just to do intake with those children that are coming over, and the stories that you hear and the children that you see, you know, it's just it's heartbreaking, it's heartbreaking, and and so uh, you know they they don't have anybody, and they need they need people. They're trying to find their 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 parents oh, or their yeah. family members that are here. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard to even imagine, Sharon. I, and, and in your case, did you have any notification from your mother, or did she just leave? Did you know she was going to leave? No, she prepared us. She prepared us. She she, uh, she did. Told us, you know, I have to leave for my safety and for your safety. And so, um, you know, one thing that she always she always told us, she says, you know, your father and I are having issues. It doesn't have anything to do with you. He loves you, and I chose him to be your father. And so there, you know, he's your dad. Um, and mm-hmm. so, you know, I'm going to leave you with your dad. And, and, um, and I was terrified, you know, but I was also told that I couldn't tell him. I couldn't tell him um, that she was leaving and I couldn't tell him where she was going because it was dangerous for her, for oh, her um, life. And so, I, yeah, I was fearful um, of that, but I also, I was not in the dark. You know, she told, she told me what was happening. Yeah. So, these children that that you've been dealing with can can you give us an example of a of a situation that you've been particularly touched by with the children coming across the border? Oh, you know what I have I have them in my mind and I have them in my heart. Um, almost every day I think about him. Um, his name his name is Josue, and he is from um, he's from El Salvador. Um, you know, I met him two years ago, so he was 13 then, and so he's 15 now. Um, he was the skinniest boy I have ever seen, and, <laughs> and mm-hmm. the happiest boy I've ever seen, but he had a heartbreaking story. And that is, um, you know, so he was, he's, he's uh, been alone since he was six years old, and he lived for a while in, a, in an outhouse. Um, very, very, very poor. And so he went to, he made himself go to school. I suppose he's an orphan, made himself go to school. Uh, they're not an orphan, he's abandoned. Um, uh, made himself go to school until the age of eight. So he went to second, you know, through second grade. And then he started working. So he was working in the fields, and he would, you know, he said, I would steal to eat, or I would, you know, whatever. I would find food somehow, and the neighbors would feed me or whatever. So he was a, he was a homeless boy. And, um, and I kept saying to him, so what happened to your mother? What happened to your mother? And and um, and he would say um, say say equivoqué, you know, which means she made a mistake. You know, he would say that over and over again. My mother made a mistake, and I said, mm. "What kind of mistake?" And, and he wouldn't say. He wouldn't say. And then finally, you know, I worked with him for for about four days, and then finally on day four, he told me his mother was a prostitute, and uh-huh. um, and that she had done. You know, prostitution was not illegal, but she had done something illegal within that, um, where she'd been attacked, and so she attacked the man back. And so she'd been convicted and was in prison. And, um, and so there was nobody to care for him. And I said, well, what about extended family, grandmother, you know, you know, and he says, you know, my, my grandmother had 14 children, and they all have many, many, many children. And my grandmother is very old, and she has to take care of a lot of them, 
there was no space for me, is what he told me. He's one of the younger ones, and he said there was no space for me. And so I put my pennies together. Um, I, I, I begged, I stole, I did whatever for five years, and then I came up with this amount of money, um, and I found the coyote who would bring me, you know, to the United States. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so he did that, and he went from his, you know, went through several, you know, from his country, from El Salvador into Guatemala, into Mexico, and then into Texas. Um, and it took him, he said it took him about eight months. And um, he stopped, and he worked, and he did different things. Um, and on the way, he was sexually assaulted. You know, so oh, this is a little skinny boy. And it's not, his story is not unique. And that's the thing that's so right. frightening, it's so sad, you know. His story is not unique. And, um, and so I never forgot him because in his telling me the story, I was trying to hold it together, you know, and then I just started crying because oh, I yeah. have a son that age. I have a son that age, and I could not imagine my son going through anything like that. And, um, and, but he, and he, said, he tried to comfort me. <laughs> so oh, was, my goodness. Like, it's heartbreaking. Oh, it's, it's okay. It's okay. I'm okay. And I said, you know what? Thank God you're okay now because you're, you've crossed the border. You're here. And, you know, the, the, this was at the, um, one of the detention facilities for children that's down in, um, in San Antonio. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're like, they're like boarding schools. You know, once they get them out of the Army um, barracks where they, where they had been um, warehousing all those children, they put them in these places that are kind of like boarding schools. So they're all boys together, all girls together, and by age group. So he was safe at that point. And, you know, it's one of the things when I hear, for political reasons, American people freaking out about these children coming across the border, I remember him. And, yes. I, and I, think, you know, I think about these children who have no place and no one. And when they're there, they are safe. And I think that's our role. You know, that is our role in this society, is to, in this country, is to take in refugees like that, you know? And so that, absolutely, that's, that's my and yeah, that, that's that's uh, just the way. Um, that's the one that weighs heavy on your heart, yeah. huh? Mm-hmm. So, what mm-hmm. happens to them then when they're in the boarding school? Is there an effort to send them back to their country? What, what well, goes they, on? You know, then? They, they are they are in deportation when they're in that um, when they're in the in um, in the boarding school um, or you know it's a detention center, but uh, it, 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 it's a, it's a fairly decent place. It's run by the um, Office of Refugee um, Resettlement. O-R-R. And um, they, when they're there, it's just like any other detention facility. It's just it's, it's more humane because they're children. And, mm-hmm. um, and you know, they're, they're family detention facilities where they're children with, their, with parents. But in these facilities, they're just children who have crossed. Um, they're unaccompanied minors. And but they don't, they, have, they don't have any freedom, right? They, they, they're detained. No, they, they, they're, they're, uh, they're locked up. I mean, you know, they're, they're um, detained. And so... Mm-hmm. Um, so those those children are in are in deportation process, and so they you know the the, the system is really really quite overburdened because there's so many you know, um, and so they're in the deportation process. Um, they have to go through the process where they are um, either the, the 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 program tries to find family members that are here or that will take them in, and then they go through deportation once they're with family or with mm-hmm. you know family friend or something like that. Um, and now, when I when I'm working with that program, I'm not in the role of a lawyer at all. I'm in the role of of an intake person who just tries to connect these children with people that can take them in. And once they're taken in, um, some of them do um, find fam, um, do find parents. Um, some find uncles, you know, cousins, whatever, uh, family friends. They go and live with those people, and then their cases are transferred from San Antonio court to wherever they are throughout the U.S. So they go to Florida, California, New York, Michigan, wherever, and the cases follow them. 
So then they have to go to court in whichever location they're at. Yeah. And do you know what's happened with uh, Jose? What's happened you know with what? him? Do you have- we found an uncle that's in Michigan, and so he went to that uncle. And I, and I lost touch with him since. Yeah, I'm sure he has his own lawyer, and I'm, you know, I'm not allowed to um, connect with him that way. Oh, really? Okay. Well, at least he found a place. Let's hope he's okay. I hope he's okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but there's so many. Oh my gosh, there's so many facets to what you do, Sharon. It's just, it's really fascinating. Well, you in your in your bio, you say you uh, handle immigrant non-immigrant visa petitions. What's a non-immigrant visa petition? Um, a non-immigrant visa petition is the those are the visas that you hear about typically. So there there are two there are two categories. There's the um there's um there's uh, NIV non-immigrant visa and IV immigrant visa. And the the, the immigrant visa is the green card. Right, so that's oh, where okay. somebody, yeah, somebody is petitioned by a family member and they can come to the U.S. and live as a resident. A non-immigrant visa is a temporary visa. It's not a, it's not a pass to a green card, a pass to a, I mean, sometimes it's a pass to a green card, but it's not, you know, directly a green card. So there, there's several different categories. And I, I talked earlier about the trafficking, I mean, the visa for trafficked um, individuals, that's mm-hmm. a T visa. So that's a non-immigrant visa. You have, um, you know, a B visa, which is just a visa for visitors and for people coming to do business for a short period. You know, that kind of, that kind of thing. So the, the non-immigrant visa categories range from A all the way to V. And, um, you know, and they, and they address different, um, they, they address different purposes um, for which people can come into the U.S. to, to participate in the, in, the, in the culture or, you know, work here or do whatever. So So these are folks that maybe, um, because I know of some of these, uh, that have been here in this country a while, uh, they have applied and finally get a social security number so they can work uh, legitimately, that's what we're talking about? Uh, No, I mean, you know, there are are work visas within the non-immigrant visa category, but um, work visas are, you know, things like H-1Bs and... uh, uh, you have the I visa that's for for um, for journalists, you know that kind of thing. So there are visas for people who come to work, and with, under those visas is that's where people are allowed to get a social security number and can work legally. Other visa categories like the B visa, which is the visitor visa, you cannot work on that, or um, uh, the C visa, which is for for uh, crew for crew workers, people who work on ships. D, which is a transit visa. You know, so those kinds of visas you're not allowed to work. Um, okay. And uh, but the vast majority of these of non-immigrant visa categories, you are allowed um, to work once you have applied for work authorization and and, and that type of thing. Um, so visas like H one B, that the, the permission to work is inherent in that. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, for the for the journalists, it's inherent in that E, you know, those types of things. And so you've got investor visas or work visas or things like that. Um, those visas come with the um, permission to work. Others don't. And, and um, others don't, and you can never get it. And others don't, but you, have to, you can apply for it. You know, okay. so you have those and, different things. And isn't there a situation where um, somebody wants to immigrate to the United States and they, they say they have a business and they have to show that they have so much, um, so much money to be able to start this business or something like that? Is, am I off base here? And no, you're, you're right. That is the... Um, well, there, there are two different categories there. There's, um, there is the, um, the investor visa, and that's a non-immigrant visa, the e, E1, E2. 
um, where you have to invest a certain percentage of money, and it all has to be um, it all has to be um, uh, committed to that business. Um, so there's that that's a non-immigrant visa, and then you've got the the immigrant visa slash green card, which is the EB-5, and that's become a very popular one. And the EB-5 um, green card slash visa is an investor visa where you invest 500000 to a $1 million in um, either a, um, a business that you start yourself or a regional center that, is, that has been um, approved by the government. So, you know, the, I mean, I don't even want to get into the weeds of that because it's yeah. way beyond the, the yeah. But um, yes, yeah, so you're right that you can you can do business um, under so visa. money buys any, anything, including immigration, huh? It's just <laughs> it's amazing. Another form of foreign investment. Okay, <laughs> whatever you say, <laughs> foreign investment is right. Okay. Um, I just have so many questions. We're going to have to take another quick break, though. Um, We'll be right back. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Sharon S.K. Williams is a immigration lawyer, and she's telling us about how just how complicated and how multifaceted this immigration law is. So, when you um, when you start work, working with um, we talked about children, and I that's just a it's just heartbreaking to think about the kids they're by themselves. But when you when you're dealing with women and families, where do you start there? What, what are the components that you need to have in order to help your client? 
when I'm dealing with women and children, you said? Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you, when women and families. Women and families. Um, you know, it, it will depend on the case. So each of, each of these, uh, each case that comes through the door is different, even though there's similarities. Uh, mm-hmm. So you would have to make an analysis, of course, so, so right off the bat. Um, so I do, I, I do what's called an intake. Um, my program works with volunteers and, and um, who come in and do intake. We, we do something called um, uh, the Board of Immigration Appeals um, representative. So we, we, we train non-lawyers to do this work, and then they can get a certificate um, from the Board of Immigration Appeals that allows them to, to work with clients this way. So our, most of our, our, um, our volunteers are seniors, and so they, 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 a lot of them have experience doing other things, right? So they're very committed. They will get mm-hmm. the Board of Immigration Appeals um, uh, accreditation, and they can almost give advice. So before, they co- even, before the clients even come to me, they go to one of our volunteers who does an intake, and they tell their story, and, and that person takes down all the information from them, and then it mm-hmm. comes to me, and then I make an analysis. And so before we do anything for, for folks, we have to hear what it is exactly they're coming to us for. And then we make an analysis of whether we can assist them or not. You know, there are a lot okay. of people who, um, who have no, um, no way to legalize. Um, but you don't know that until you hear what's going on for them. And, um, you know, but the, the other piece is that we also are counselors. And so um, rather, than, you know, rather than turn people away because we can't help them, we talk to them. You know, so we give mm-hmm. them... 15, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, half an hour of our time, and we talk to them because, you know, it, it, it relieves their burden, but also in that telling, it, we might find the solution for their situation. You know, so people come in right. and they'll say, well, you know, I'm married, I've been married to this American guy for 10 years. I'm being, I'm being abused, and he's, I'm, I'm undocumented. That's a very, very common story, very common. Hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So people, you know, come to U.S., they marry an American, and, um, and it's not all, you know, it could be a naturalized American. It could be a native-born American. Um, and I don't know if it's human nature that, that does this, that's why we get this result. I have you in my, in my, um, in my claw, and I'm not going to, I'm, I'm going to right. you, and I'm not going to give you, I'm not going to allow you to become legal here. So we get that a lot. And then, so then the children, who also a lot of times have come along with the mother or with the father, um, then get drawn into this abusive situation as well. So then everybody can get legalized under the Violence Against Women Act. And so, um, so that's an analysis, you know, that, you, that we can make. I mean, the, the, a very common situation that we find is, you know, people who have been in marriages for years and years, 15, 20 years, and right. they've never, ever been legalized. Right. So those, when those uh, cases come, um, I'm, I'm thrilled, you know, because I can help them. You there can help them. Where, yeah, there are many, many cases where I can't help at all. Um, but the help, I mean, I can't help them to legalize, but the help that I give them is, be, is being able to tell them and for, to hear their story, but also point them to resources. You know, because there are resources for people who are, um, who are in, in this country and who are undocumented and have no way to legalize. And so, you know, when they come, they get something out of it. You know, I like, I like to, um, even if there are no resources, they get to alleviate their they're suffering a little bit by talking, you know, so. Right. And so what would make a person ineligible? Ineligible. Um, what makes them in, in, ineligible? Um, you know, there are many different things, but, I mean, you know, if you have convictions, you're, inel- you're ineligible. Um, 
or if you, and I'll go back to that in just a second, but, um, or if you, um, if you have no way to, to, to get a green card. You know, there are many people who are, who come into U.S., they're undocumented, or they come in with a visa and they overstay, and then they, and then they marry someone who's also undocumented. That's not helpful. You know, so, you know, the person right. can't help you get legal. Um, or they just have no way, they have nobody to petition on their behalf so that they can get legal or anything like that. So, and that is why you have these, uh, you know, anywhere between 11 and 13 million people here who are undocumented because they have no way to adjust, right? So there's a very small percentage of people who have come in that way um, who can. Um, and, and, uh, and that's why, you know, you have things like the, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, DACA, that we have now that's very helpful to people who were brought here as children um, by their parents or sent by their parents. They went to school. They've gotten degrees and so on. They've worked. They, you know, they've been here a long time. They are um, eligible for the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. And in, in, a, in a roundabout way, it has allowed them to become legible, um, eligible for, um, for a green card because they can travel in DACA and then come back in and get a stamp in their passport. Once that happens, then they can apply for a green card if they get uh, if they have a petitioner. That's, that's so, you know, crazy. Many, yeah, <laughs> that's just yeah, they're, crazy. They're, yeah, no, it, it's a very complex um, situation. Very, very complex situation. So, um, so okay. So, say you have a family that came in twenty twenty five years ago, and um, their their children are now grown. Of course, they brought their children with them, but their children are now grown. Their children have gotten um, some kind of visa, and the parents still have not. What do those parents do? Um, well, you know, it depends on the status of the children. So if you came in 25 years ago, you brought your kids. If you had a child here and the child is now 21, that child can petition on your behalf. But if you came in across the border, and this is the thing that why we have this vast number of people, right, because you can come in, you know, whatever, and you have this child that was born in the U.S. that's an American and um, can petition on your behalf. But when you came in 25 years ago, you crossed the border without a visa. That is called entering without inspection, right? EWI. That's EWI. And if you come in EWI, you are almost, it's almost impossible to to, uh, become legal. We call that, you know, the, the term of art for that is adjust status. So adjustment of status is the way that you apply for a green card without leaving the country. So people can't, you know, that child can petition for those parents, you know, the 21-year-old who was born in the mm-hmm. U.S. can petition mm-hmm. for those parents, but they cannot adjust status, meaning they can't apply for a green card within the U.S. They have to leave and go back to, and come back, you know, yeah. or wherever they're from and, um, and, and do what's called consular processing. So they have to apply for the green card through the, um, the U.S. Embassy down there. Now, the problem with that is that they've been here for a very long time um, undocumented. And when you've been in the U.S. for a very long time undocumented and you, and you exit, you then face a 10-year bar for it to return. Mm-hmm. Okay? You can't come back right. for 10 years. And that is why people want to adjust status. And the way that you can adjust status in that situation is that you have to do something that's very, very hard to do is that you have to qualify for a waiver of the, um, of the return. And that's a whole other section of, of law, um, you know, that, that there's something called a hardship waiver, um, and there are many, many waivers, but the popular one right now is a hardship waiver, the 601A um, waiver, that allows you to, that gives you permission to leave and come right back, or that allows you to adjust right here. And um, not many people can qualify for that, you know, so the mm-hmm. hardship waiver, meaning that there is an extreme hardship 
to an American citizen that is an immediate relative. So your husband, your, your wife, your children, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, and the ones that I've seen that have been successful, um, the families have heartbreaking situations where you have a child who is autistic or you have a child that, that's American um, or you have a child that has, you know, spina bifida or something like that. So you get right. extreme situations where it's an extreme hardship and you've got to prove that. Mm. Well, so what's the solution, Sharon? What, I mean, we have millions um, of people here in this country. What is the solution? <laughs> the solution is very controversial, obviously. Um, and <laughs> Building a wall is probably not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> that's why it hasn't passed. You know, it's called comprehensive immigration reform. And, um, and, you know, there are arguments all over the place for and, you know, pro and con. And there are lots and lots of wonderful, smart people working on both sides. And so, you know, it's at the end of the day, really, um, something's got to give. And mm-hmm. so um, I imagine that, um, that uh, you know, under, hopefully, anyway, under the, the next administration, which I'm, uh, I'm hoping will not be a Trump administration, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll get some kind of um, relief, you know, right. because, yeah, something's got to give with us. Yeah. And what do you think of the sanctuary cities? Um... You think that's a good thing again, or not? You know, it, I, I didn't hear the sanctuary cities. You know, I, I, like again, San Francisco. Again, I, think, I, I think that I think that they're. Um, it, it, it depends because I think that there's certain there's certain um, there's certain immigrants that that need protection, and because of the way we have thought of refugees in this in this country during this uh, specific time, you know, the U.S. is suffering from uh, fear of, of uh, terrorism and all this other kind of stuff. So um, when, when folks say sanctuary city, it, 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 it conjures up this idea of us hiding all these criminals, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's not the case. The vast majority of people that would benefit from having a sanctuary city um, are people who are not criminals, right? Yeah, there will be criminals who will filter through that. And so, um, you know, I, I think that the media... Um, and certain politicians have used what's called, you know, sort of the Willie Horton type of uh, um, scare tactics that they've used to say, look at that guy, you know, he killed that woman on the, on the pier in San Francisco, and he was, um, you know, he should have been deported a long time ago, um, but because mm-hmm. of the sanctuary city thing, he ended up staying. And that is true, I, I, and I understand that, and I sympathize with that family and everything like that. However, the vast majority of people that I know that are fearful, that are hiding right here in Richmond, are not criminals. You know, there are people who have, have suffered in their societies, whether they're, com- they're coming from Syria or from Mexico or whatever. They, you know, there are people who have suffered. And I feel like the U.S., we need to have that conversation about what our, what our, our, our um, legacy has been around protecting, um, protecting uh, uh, refugees. And so while the idea of a sanctuary city is very, very um, controversial for some people, um, I think we want, I would like for people to think of it beyond, you know, the one or two or three criminals that, that um, somehow um, get in and, and, um, and get a pass because of the sanctuary city. And, and a big, of course, uh, Mexico and Latin America has always been controversial, but now we have Syria on top of it. Uh, how do we deal with that? It's a tough one. You know, it's a tough one because we, we are... Um, because we're we're afraid of um, we're afraid we're, mm-hmm. we're afraid and and um, at the, again you know when when we, when we fear 
you know, 100 people, do we throw out, you know, the, the, the 500,000 that are, that are truly suffering? And, um, mm-hmm. you know, while we are afraid and we're having all these issues, you know, and we're, we're, we're fighting over whether we should let these people in, I want to give props to the U.S., though. You know, I really do, because I look, for me, I don't look at immigration, just U.S. immigration. I look at immigration globally. And mm-hmm. the United States is a, is a model. With, with as much pushback and fighting that we're doing, at least we're fighting, at least we're talking about it. You know, which is what I admire about this country, is that we, there's, there, there are very few places in the world where um, we are actually talking about the situation, right? We, you know, leaders make rules and that's it, and the public doesn't get to participate. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm really admiring of the system because of that. And... Um, and so what do we do about it? We're talking about it. We're trying to figure out what to do. Because I'll tell you, there are no other countries um, that are taking in these people, right? So Europe has, mm-hmm. Europe has shut down completely. Europe doesn't want anything mm-hmm. to do with these folks. When, in fact, a lot of the situation uh, around the globe, uh, you know, that it's, uh, it has come directly from sort of certain European actions way back in the day, you know, with colonization and all this other kind of stuff, with Europe carving up all places in the world. But now they haven't taken the responsibility of what has happened. So the United States is very much um, admired by a lot of people because, you know, we are doing what we're doing. Yeah, we, we, we freak out and we're trying to make laws and everything like that, and which is our right. It's our right to be fearful. It's our right to discuss. Um, but at the same time, we're doing the right thing to, at a certain level of letting people in. So, um, yeah, you know, that's, that's, my, that's my piece. Of, you know, that's why I, how I feel about that is that, yeah, we, we, we're, we're fearful, and we have the right to be fearful, but at the same time, we're doing the right thing to a certain level, and, and we are letting refugees in. Well, that's, I'm glad to hear you say that, because it is such a huge, um, overwhelming issue. I mean, it's, it just seems like it's not even solvable, uh, not even resolvable somehow. And uh, I, I hope somebody has a, a magic wand that they could wave and figure this out, because uh, I, I just... I don't know. It's it just seems so big. It is big. It's 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 a very big um, problem. And um, you know, I mean, look at how you know what's happening around the world. You know, there are conflicts everywhere, and um, and and so we we're doing we're playing our role. We're doing our job, I think. And and the rest of the West is kind of not. And so it's important, I think, for the U.S. to continue. Um, to discuss what's happening and for us to participate as citizens and give our opinion and everything like that. Um, we have not at all suffered the way that, that um, England has suffered, you know, from, from mm-hmm. terrorism or, you know, any, anything mm-hmm. like that. So I think that we're still fairly open. And it's not to diminish what has happened here, um, obviously. But, um, you know, we still, are, we still have been relatively safe in comparison, you know. Um, and one of the things that I always say when, when I talk about U.S. immigration is that it is, you know, we complain about it and we, we think that, you know, immigration reform is a, is a huge problem and the people coming across the border is a huge problem. And it is, you know, we, all these uh, refugees coming and everything like that. Um, however, the United States is a country of immigrants, you know, uh, forced yes. or free. Yeah. You know, and yep. so, you know, it, 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 this is a place where people will always come to, you know, and for me... Um, you had asked me early on, you said some person um, wrote into you and said, you know, why is she here rather than being in Belize when Belize is such a lovely place? And, and you know, while my, my, my country birth um, is a wonderful place, it's a beautiful place, 
Um, I was brought here as a child. I, you know, the United States is my home. I, I've been here, you know, almost 40 years now. And, um, you know, it's one of the things about this country that I love, um, and I love my home country, but it's one of the things I love about the United States is that in, of any country in the world, it's the only place that you can come for a visit and stay for a lifetime. You know, and there so I think it's That's important nice. for us to remember that. You know, there are many, many countries in the world where you go there to visit and you cannot overstay. And you can yeah. stay there if you want, but even the children that are born will never be citizens of that, of that society. Okay? So, you know, you have and countries Sharon, like... And Sharon, and I'm so thankful that you're doing the work you're doing because it's, it's, you have really important work. Way more important than I realized before I talked to you. But, you know, we're at the end of our hour. I could talk to you two more hours. So, um, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Thank and you for folks, having me. Absolutely. And so the rest of you can in again next week as we declassify more real stories uh, from real investigators and attorneys and related topics like this one. Thank you so much, Sharon. It's P.I.'s Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Thanks again for listening to the preceding. Are you finding your frequency? It can.